Kate. Hey. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to uh, Hot and Bothered, Kate. Welcome back. Yeah, good to, uh, good to be here once again. How are you doing? How are you holding up? Oh, I'm I'm okay. I've lost track of what day it is, I think. It's it's a day. It's definitely it's it's bright outside, so I don't think it's it's a midnight show. No, we're not we're not into hot and bothered after dark yet. That's that's coming soon, dear listeners. It's not. I'm I just teased something that doesn't exist yet. If you want it, you know, let us know. But it could happen. It could happen. Um, those would be the more pessimistic, deeply pessimistic episodes. Dark Mountain. Or, or incredibly optimistic, depending on how we're feeling that night yeah. <laughs> and what's on our systems. Eco-socialism on Mars. Um, yeah. I've been reading Red Mars, and so I'm, I'm just very excited about that. I've been reading no fiction, so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that's a perfect lead-in. So, you know, this is Hot and Bothered. It's a podcast on climate politics in the time of uh, coronavirus, hosted by Descent Magazine. And our producer is Colin Kinnebra. Um, who are we talking to this week, Kate, for the sort of unvarnished non-fictional uh, take on, on our situation? Yeah, we are talking to journalist and author Bethany McLean uh, about the ongoing crisis in the oil industry. She is the author of a book that I have been um, recommending to people since I got to read it a couple months ago called Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Um and yeah, if you if you like this episode, I'll just say briefly, I would, I would definitely recommend it. It's a quick it's a quick read. Um, it was written in 2018. And I think, you know, a lot of things are changing very quickly about oil uh, and, and the energy system in general. But I think it, it really holds up. Yeah. You know, she wrote um, McLean wrote this canonical, I think, of a sort of canonical op ed in, in 2018 on how the fracking industry isn't actually making uh, any money. Um, and so this spring, you know, oil prices went to negative. Um, the whole U.S. fracking industry is in crisis because oil prices, although no longer negative, still very, very low. Uh, so she just seemed the absolutely perfect person to talk about. Um, before we get to the conversation, a few things just to sort of set up, I think, what we're going to talk about and make sure we're all on the same page. The first one, I mean, Kate, could you just say a word on how fracking and, and shale can be a about both oil and gas? I think a lot of people, when they hear fracking, are only thinking about uh, gas. Yeah, so I think that there can be a little bit of confusion about this. We refer to fracking and more so shell drilling, sort of interchangeably. So uh, hydraulic fracturing is a drilling technique which can produce both oil and gas, and shale is a sort of formation that you get the fuel out of. Um and so we, we talk about those things because the industrial processes are often tied. And so you will um, drill for oil and you get gas out of that. Um, we'll link to this in the show notes, but there uh, has been a sort of increasing understanding that oil and gas, which are often talked about sort of together, um, are actually sort of diverging in terms of market forces that act upon them. Um, and so we'll link to uh, a couple of, of kind of explainers about about that in the show notes. We don't go really in, in, in depth into that in the show, um, but it's, it's just a good kind of background to have. Great. Yeah, that's that's super helpful, Kate. And, you know, again, we just say this because, you know, in the, sh- in the conversation with um, with Bethany McLean, we kind of lumped the fracking uh, for gas and oil together because as a kind of industry in terms of the profits. Um, they're, they're very tightly linked, of course, because they come out of the same process. Um, now, that's, there's another thing I think to mention just ahead of time is that we really drill in on the political economy. Drill in. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, is it even a pun? Is it even a pun? Or is it just a cosmic coincidence? Um, we drill in. We, we drill in. Uh, make some lateral moves in the conversation. Um, really maximizing the surface area of this conversation. <laughs> It's a fracking joke. Look, uh, yeah, there's like sand all over my face. <laughs> Chemicals whose names I can't pronounce. Um, yeah. Um, Flaring so off we, that air as we speak. <laughs> um, so, right. So this is very on point because, you know, we don't really get into the environmental consequences or dimensions of, of the whole operation that much just because um, Bethany is such an expert on the economics of the industry uh, and the politics of it. We just really wanted to, you know, help our listeners and help ourselves just understand, you know, what the hell's been going on in this industry in the last few years. Um, 
I do want to note, obviously, and as anybody listening to this show probably already knows, fracking has horrible environmental consequences. We don't think that quote unquote natural gas or fossil gas is a bridge to the future. Of course, there are horrible effects in terms of like water, uh, groundwater contamination. Um, there's a great book called Fractivism that talks in some depth about the kind of discovery and community activism around these uh, very difficult to detect, often toxins, a book by Sarah Ann Wiley, and we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. And another piece that we would love to point you to in terms of the environmental contestation uh, and activism around fracking is a piece called The Fractivists, which our producer, Colin Kinnebra, wrote back in 2015. Uh, it's a great piece, looks at the kind of international dimensions of struggles around fracking, and it will be linked to in the show notes. And there's one last point that I think we want to just touch on briefly. In the conversation, we, we pushed Bethany McLean a little bit on this question of nationalization. And Kate, maybe do you want to say a word when the climate movement thinks about nationalizing the fossil fuel industry? Um, what, what does that look like? Or what, what does it look like to you? Yeah, I mean, I think in a in a very technical sense, nationalizing the industry, particularly as so many uh, companies are going bankrupt or will very soon or their valuations are really plummeting. Um, it means uh, effectively the government, you know, taking a majority equity stake in, in the company and sort of directing Directing what it does, I think there's a spectrum there, right? Uh, you could imagine either the government taking uh, equity stake in individual companies. You could imagine um, combining assets into some sort of national oil company, like exists in you know most other oil producing countries on Earth. Um, so there's a there's a sort of range of what it could look like, but um, you know the baseline when I think climate uh, folks talk about it is to scale down production uh, and and put it on a pathway for managed decline. Um, so that's, you know, ensuring that we don't cut off the flow of fossil fuels overnight, uh, but that there is a, an effort to do that on a science-based timeline. And I think, you know, not to, not to sort of spoil it, but what Bethany brings up, which is a very <laughs> legitimate concern, um, is that, you know, that uh, technology is is effectively kind of neutral, right? And so you could imagine uh, nationalization happening as it as it has uh, in other countries under uh, a range of, of leadership styles, and and a you know Trump controlled nationalization is a very different prospect to consider um, the nationalization uh, by a democratic administration. That's perfectly put, Kate. And for those of you listening who are hungering for a, a more in depth analysis of what it would mean to nationalize the fossil fuel industry. We will have an episode on that specifically coming for you in the weeks ahead. The last couple of things before we get to the interview. The first is that we are counting on listener support to make this podcast possible. Listener support in the form of a monthly contribution to our Patreon is what covers the technical costs of this podcast and pays our freelance producer, Colin Kinnebra, who's doing such a fantastic job. So if you have a few bucks to spare, your income is protected, and you haven't already signed up, please do head to patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate. That's patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate to sign up for one of our uh, very, you know, wittily worded um, subscription tiers. And one of the perks of those tiers is that if you sign up, uh, you can come to our next happy hour which is happening in just a couple weeks on June 9th. So we hope to see many of you there. You can sign up for as little as $3 a month. That's right. And there's tons of great perks, uh, online subscription to Descent Magazine, various free eBooks, including the one Kate and I wrote with Alyssa Battistoni and Theory of Franco's A Planet to Win. So um, lots of great stuff to check out at the Patreon. Um, we'd also be really grateful if you could help us spread the word about the show, which is free. Um, rating us, uh, reviewing us on iTunes makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, recommending us to your friends, word of mouth is, is huge. Um, you know, sending links from whichever podcast platform that you that you use, uh, tweeting at us um, or, or with us, hashtag hot bothered climate uh, is a great way to be in touch with us. And also just feel free to drop us an email at hot.bothered.climate at gmail.com. So without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Bethany McLean. She is the author of Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. She's also the co-author of the bestseller, The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron with Peter Alkind. 
as well as many other books. She is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Bethany McLean, welcome to Hot and Bothered. Thank you for having me. How is uh, how is this quarantine treating you? Well, <laughs> I think the same as everyone else in that it is interminable in 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 many ways. But you know, I'm trying to find the good in it, and I'm lucky. I have a nice house to live in, and my kids are old enough to not be enormous pains, um, just just minor pains. <laughs> um, so 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 it's it's as good as it can be. So to start off, I mean, we we are going to, you know, get into some details and background here, but I'm wondering if you could just give us a, a sort of quick summary um, for, for what's happened to shale oil drilling in the last three months. So what's happened has been dramatic um, and seems like external forces hit the shale industry, but there's a narrative underneath that. So I'm going to start with the external forces and then I'll back up to the narrative that was already brewing under underneath that. So the external forces are that the pandemic completely crushed the demand for oil and resulted in prices falling. Oil is obviously a commodity and runs according to the laws of supply and demand. So with demand down as radically as it is, that in and of itself um, crushed the price. On top of that, Russia and Saudi Arabia in early March essentially launched a price war where they both refused to cut production. And so what you'd want to see for prices to go up would be big suppliers cutting their production in order to maintain the price. And instead, you had the opposite of that. And those two things conspired to totally crush the price of oil and therefore to totally crush um, shale drillers, resulting in big uh, budget cuts for a lot of them. And so now you have predictions that instead of continuing huge growth in um, U.S. oil, oil production, that you're going to see a big decline next year as drillers cut their their, their drilling budgets. But the, the narrative underneath that was that investors were already getting fed up with this sector because it doesn't produce free cash flow. And investors had already been saying, wait, we want to see some evidence that this business is going to make money and is going to reward us for being investors in this. And we're, we're not seeing that. So you had seen shale stocks have really miserable performance um, running up to this. So it's not as if everything was great. And the pandemic hit combined with Saudi Arabia and Russia and turned great to terrible. It's that things weren't so good to begin with. And then you had these two external factors that completely crushed the market. We want to circle back to the crisis, but I think at this point, it's helpful to actually go back a little bit and just sort of flesh out some of the background on uh, fracking and its finances. Um, And so I, I want to ask you a little bit about your book, Saudi America, to kind of lay some foundations. Um, I think there's basically a, a folk understanding that there's a new technological innovations in the last 15 to 20 years. It fuels this boom that starts off in North Dakota, really picks up steam in the last um, decade. And this is layered on these earlier technological innovations that go back all the way to World War II. Can you give us like, you know, what's your kind of analysis of actually how we move from the technological innovations to the enormous shale boom of the past decade? Right. So it's an interesting story in that the technological innovations are real. The ability to get oil and natural gas out of places in the geology that previously wouldn't yield it is actually a it's a truly remarkable thing, whether you're a pro or con fossil fuels, just from a pure technological standpoint. And so it began with natural gas, because gas is obviously easier. It's gas than 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 oil to, to, to frack. And so the idea was, it wasn't necessarily new, but the idea was you could combine these two techniques that had been around for a long time. One was was fracking, which is basically akin to somebody somebody gave me an analogy that I really loved, which is being in a in a huge building and plugging up all the exits and yelling fire and watching kind of what comes out <laughs> in, in in various places. And that that's that's a good analogy for what you do when you frack a well. You plug it up with sand and then you push fluids into it and then you see what escapes from basically all the all the crevices that you that you create um 
that was combined with horizontal drilling. So instead of drilling a well vertically, you drill a well the, the well horizontally. And those two innovations, and I mean, think of what it takes to steer a drill bit for 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 a mile underneath, way down deep in the earth. And so the technology is actually pretty pretty astounding. And this began with natural gas, and we began to be able to produce natural gas from places in the world in, in the U.S. that we thought we we couldn't. In fact, back in two thousand seven, there were congressional hearings, hand wringing hearings about how the United States was short of of natural gas. And here we are 15 years later, and most people believe we have a plethora of super cheap natural gas. And that's, I mean, it's it's a pretty dramatic about face. And people then began to apply the same techniques to oil production um, as they'd used in natural gas. And the same thing essentially happened in that we went from from no from very little oil production to briefly last year being the world's biggest producer of oil ahead of this Saudi Arabia and Russia for the first time since the 1970s so the production side of this has been extraordinary but at the same time the the, the business never never made money and so there's also a financial story to, to this, and that's what I tried to detail in my book, which is that, it, weirdly enough, if it hadn't been for the financial crisis of 2008 and the era of record low interest rates that that ushered in as the Fed cut interest rates in an effort to save the economy, it's not clear that fracking ever would have taken off the, the, the way it did because fracking needs, a, these companies need to raise constant capital. And so ultra low interest rates enabled them to raise a ton of debt that they would not otherwise have been able to raise had, had interest rates been, been higher. And it also created a huge desire in uh, on the part of investors for anything that was growing. It became all about growth. And so for a long time, investors didn't care whether it made money or not. They just wanted to see an industry that was that was growing. And so the fact that investors were willing to value these companies based not on profits, but rather on production growth, sort of like valuing an internet company based on the number of eyeballs rather rather than the actual profits, um, meant that the industry could 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 continue to raise capital to, to fund itself and draw investors into so it's really a twofold story. It's a story of technological innovation, and it's a story of financial engineering. Yeah, and I mean, as you as you mentioned, really at the top, I mean, even when oil prices are relatively high, these companies had a lot of trouble making money. Um, so, I mean, what's the best explanation for why uh, why Wall Street kept throwing money at them? Like, why, why do they keep, you know, getting access to financing um, for so long, even with, with negative cash flows? Yeah, I'll start with a big picture comment on that, because it, 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 it is kind of ironic, right? Because you think that Wall Street, super smart, hardcore, wouldn't continue to invest in something that doesn't make money. But then you just have to look at the, the financial crisis of 2008, subprime mortgages, right? Wall Street obviously goes crazy for things all the time, <laughs> goes crazy for things that turn out not to make any economic sense, right? So with that, with that as, a, as, as, a, as a broad backdrop, I think it, it, it gets back a little bit to what I said before, which is that there was this belief that if you could just this desire to see growth, and there was this belief that continued technological innovations were going to enable these companies to make money at some point, and that what you were doing was just acquiring acreage and building a business in much the same way Amazon and Google and Facebook lost money for, for years before they finally made money, that this was just the building phase. And eventually, it, eventually the profits were, were going to come as new tech as improvements in technology enabled you to make money m more easily. That's the, the happy, happy story. There's a slightly darker story under that, which is that Wall Street often can make money even when investors don't make money. And so because these companies needed to raise immense amounts of capital, both equity and debt, Wall Street gets paid fees on, on that, right? I think I, I calculated for one company, Chesapeake Energy, that Wall Street made almost a billion dollars in fees um, um, from helping that company raise equity and debt o o over the years. And so Wall Street can make money on a business that turns out to be unprofitable for investors. And that Wall Street's ability to do that can keep things that don't make economic sense um, going for a lot longer than, than, than they otherwise would. Um, 
Another component of this um, is is private equity. So in the years after the financial crisis, um, pension funds had an increasingly difficult time being able to to make money in traditional ways from bonds because interest rates were so low. And pension funds have become more and more desperate to earn returns for their investors. And as a part of that, they've increasingly given money to private equity firms as a way of a way of earning returns outside of the outside of the traditional avenue of investing in bonds. Um, And they particularly gave money to to energy private equity firms, um, in part because at first, with the advent of of shale natural gas, this caught up, it caught a cycle in in commodity prices where where gas prices went up and and a couple of people, some people made made a great deal of money and this looked like a great investment. Um, And so private equity, at one point, I think accounted for almost 40% of the shale wells being drilled because they would they would fund these businesses and then sell them to already public companies and because investors were willing to value these companies based on the idea that they were going to be immensely profitable in in, in the future. Um, sometimes these stocks tra- traded really well and so for a while the private equity firms could could make a lot of money based on something that wasn't economic in the end. Does that make sense? Did I explain it decently well? Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. And just to just to um Hone on something. I mean, there are a lot of people who, in some ways, whether through their pension funds or something else, are, are sort of you know financing this activity in some way or another, right? Right. Yes. So I think people don't always realize um, um, the extent to which they may be invested in things that they that they don't like, whether it's through their pension funds um, giving money to private equity firms who then may be investing in shale oil and gas, and as a, um, a deeper, perhaps more profound irony in that is that private equity, rightly or wrongly, gets blamed for loading up companies with debt, then causing bankruptcies and huge job losses. And so you have private equity decimating jobs while attempting to protect workers' um, ability to retire, which is quite a profound um, um, conflict in, in, in some ways or conundrum. Um, but that's, 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 a little bit, um, that's a little bit of a tangent. Um, anyway, but then you also have, yes, even, even through regular public market in investments, uh, you, if you're invested in index funds, you're going to have a lot of money or, or a, a portion of your money in places that may not be, may not be where you'd want to invest. So I think as we sort of flesh out this political economy perspective on how fracking has, has taken off in the fossil fuel industry, its fortunes more broadly, let's get into a bit of um, public policy um, and, and the government So um, and, and beyond the Fed. Um, we're seeing now a, a huge crisis in the oil industry, but it's not the only price crash um, since fracking took off. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what happened in late um, 2014 and the importance to industry of Congress lifting the crude oil export ban um, after that. Great. Yes. So, so yes, the industry did crash and almost burn once before. Um, the heyday of fracking was really the years from 2010 to 2014. And in the fall of 2014, oil prices had already begun to fall. And as we mentioned earlier, even that year, even when oil prices were over $100 for the better part of a year, the fracking industry still didn't make money. So people say, well, this is an industry that, that will work when there's higher oil prices. Not not necessarily. History would raise a question mark over that, and we can, we can come back to that. But at any rate, oil prices began to slide. And in the fall of 2014, Saudi Arabia, um, just as would would a variation of that would, which we touched on, would play itself out again this this spring, but refused to cut oil production. And it was widely seen as an effort to kill the U.S. fracking industry, which was challenging Saudi Arabia for supremacy. Although people who know Saudi Arabia have have cautioned me, don't 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 ever think that as an outsider you can know what was really going on um, in 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 the minds of the kingdom. But the refusal to cut production resulted in a giant decline in in prices, and we had a number of bankruptcies in in the shale patch, and it really looked like the industry th- that it was over. Um, you had these widespread predictions that there were going to be more bankruptcies, and that this miracle of U.S. oil and gas production was was over. But it didn't end. Shale turned out to be far more resilient than its critics had had forecast. But the the reason it didn't end 
wasn't because there was suddenly a technological breakthrough that enabled the industry to deliver a gusher of profits where previously there had been there had been red ink. It was rather that access to cheap capital con- continued. So interest rates remained incredibly low. Investors, including private equity firms, continued to finance um, companies. And so instead of bankruptcies, you saw debt get restructured, companies get restructured, and you saw the industry go on and even enter into a new phase of, um, of, of mania. And another part of that um, was the development of the Permian Basin, which has been an oil producing region for for a century. Um, but for some reason, even though we all knew there was a ton of oil there, people, it, they, we were late to apply fracking to the Permian. And so there was this sort of confluence of cheap capital and enthusiasm about about, about the Permian. But as, as you mentioned, one other thing that happened, and I, I'm really convinced, um, and although there's no way to ever prove this, that if it hadn't been for this collapse, um, this this wouldn't have happened. But the longstanding ban on U.S. Um, oil exports was overturned in the waning days of the Obama administration. And the ban on oil exports dated back to the 1970s, when amid widespread fears about shortages, we banned the, the, the export of oil, which if you think about it for a purportedly free market uh, economy to say we're not going to allow the export of oil is really quite a quite a contradiction in terms. Um, But the ban had persisted through Republican administrations and Democratic administrations, mainly due to this profound fear we as a nation had about about oil shortages. And amid production from from shale, there was a huge push um, during this period of low prices by the industry to get the ban overturned, because obviously, if you can have more demand, you have a better chance of getting, getting prices to go up. And so there was a huge lobbying push from the industry to overturn prices. And I think if if shale had been more top of mind in this period, perhaps the ban wouldn't have been been overturned because there would have been more public resistance to it. But because it looked like the shale industry was going in away anyway, I don't I don't think the resistance was marshaled that might have been otherwise. And the repeal of the ban was essentially slipped into the 2015 year-end um, omnibus spending bill. And I'm not sure people even realized at the time that it had that it had happened. There were no big headlines about it. Um, the lobbyist who worked on it, I, I talked to him and he was like, this is one of the biggest things that ever happened in, in my lifetime. But the bill passed the House and it passed the Senate and then President Obama signed it and everyone left town for the holidays. And he said, I would didn't even have anybody to celebrate with. I had to take myself out for a steak in a, in a Manhattan by myself because no one was around to celebrate this this historic moment with me. People just just didn't care, and so it's 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 kind of astounding, right? In retrospect, yeah, that was one of my um, favorite parts of your <laughs> of the book is just a sort of sad uh, sad steak dinner. Uh, this, this lobbyist and and reading, I mean, reading news reports from that time. Um, and what uh, environmentalists were saying about it is, is sort of remarkable. Just that nobody, you know, really, um, really thought this would be would be a big deal. I mean, could you could you talk a little bit just about um, about the impact that had and kind of how that transformed um, transformed the, the sector? Well, I think it 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 has it's a big psychological impact more than a practical impact, although certainly the practical impact was starting. You were beginning to see, you saw a huge buildup of the areas around Corpus Christi uh, in order to start exporting oil. Um, China became a buyer of U.S. oil, which is in and of itself just an interesting uh, an interesting. Di- dynamic in in the world, so it was it was for sure starting. But you 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 hadn't seen for all the predictions of what an, an enormous geopolitical impact this was going to have. It it hadn't really materialized yet. The amount of U.S. exports was still small enough that it. it this whole idea that we were going to be a powerhouse that was able to both supply our own country's needs and export, it, it, it just, even under the best case scenario, we weren't going to produce enough to, to make that possible. Um, so we were more, it was more um, um, a threat that the U.S. was was going to be, was going to be able to export enormous amounts than it was a, a reality. It was more of a geopolitical um 
um, negotiating tool than it was necessarily an absolute physical reality. And I mean, just to to put this also, the sort of story of shale um, in the context of kind of what else is happening around this time. I mean, I, I read your book actually not, not too long after we work the the office space company imploded um, with a a corporate figurehead, Adam Newman, who I think, you know, bears a few similarities to Aubrey McClendon, who you, um, you know, profile at great length, um, former head of Chesapeake energy, so, you know, there's all this cheap credit around. There are a lot of companies getting these massive valuations on on sort of questionable foundations. I'm wondering, you know, to what extent was, was shale drilling's rise part of this broader trend? And, and what do you see as unique about it? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. And it's true. The era of cheap debt that grew out of the financial crisis enabled a lot more than than shale drilling. So shale drilling is one feature of that for sure, but there were there there are a lot of other places where you could point to to excess um, thanks thanks to thanks to cheap debt and one of them is for sure we work um, in a sense they're both manifestations of 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 the same phenomenon um, and for sure there are parallels between Adam Newman and and Aubrey McClendon and it's interesting right because people think of Wall Street and the business world as being this you know hardcore world of numbers and of rational behavior and it so is anything but these charismatic figures come along and just capture people's imaginations and can help provoke or cause these incredibly uneconomic phenomena right <laughs> i mean the flaws in we work's business model were were, were always there, and I remember reading one of the fantastic Wall Street Journal business um, uh, business stories about about Adam Newman, and an investor was quoted as saying he was six foot five, and he was charismatic, and he could tell a great story, and that's just that's what we investors wanted wanted to hear and see. And I thought, what what about profits? What about an ability to make money? What about, what about the numbers? But it but it wasn't that. And it speaks to that um, phenomenon of these larger than life characters who are such powerful salesmen and so charismatic that they can convince people to do these these uneconomic things and combine that with an era of of this of cheap debt. And of course, you're going to get craziness. What else could you get? Um. Yes. And, and it, as we come toward the present, it's just more, more insanity. Um, so, you know, in 2018, you wrote that investors were at that point already basically losing patience for these uh, shale drilling companies, you know, profits weren't there. Could you talk about some of the changes in the industry since you published that book and maybe bring us up to the present, how shale oil was was looking, say, in December, you know, 2019 or January um, of this year? before the pandemic, uh, global pandemic starts to make news? Sure. So, so, so what had drawn me to write the book in the first place was this, this dichotomy um, between these two concepts, the idea that shale, oil, and gas was changing the world, that it was going to change geopolitics, that the U.S. was becoming this powerhouse producer of both oil and natural gas, which was, which was true, combined with this this idea that the industry doesn't doesn't make money, and I was so interested in this the fact that these two concepts, which seem to be antithetical, could could exist at the same time. And so, what I set out to explore in, in the book was the idea which is is one of these is one of these false, and 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 why. And I was unable. I think I was a little. The book is probably not as skeptical as I would be if it, it's plenty skeptical, but I was reluctant to 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 draw a firm conclusion about this, how this was going to end up for, for two reasons. And one was that one was that the oil and gas industry is kind of um, um, a graveyard of for, 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 for skeptics or for a graveyard for, for predictors and that almost everybody who has made a prediction about the future of oil and gas has one thing in common, which is that they've, they've been wrong. And so I looked at this and thought, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to come up with, with an answer for, for, for where this is going to go. And the other part of it was that this promise of new technology, really given the technological um, 
progress that had created the shale revolution in the first place. When I heard all the proponents of shale drilling talk about the technological marvels that were yet to come and how these things were going to squeeze cost out of the system such that it really did become profitable to produce oil at $20 a barrel and these huge decline rates that helped cause the industry's lack of profitability, um, um, that, that new technology was, 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 was going to fix this. Um, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not, I, I can't say that's wrong. It, it, it could be because of the technological, um, marvels that have, that have come about so far. And even though investor skepticism was, was starting and investors were beginning to say, we, we want to see profits or else it's also really hard to, Investors are fickle, and it's really hard to to judge what what might drive them from from one period to to the next. And the one thing what was that was clear was that if investors kept throwing capital at the this industry, then production was 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 going to continue apace because uh, oil, oil the, the CEOs were incentivized by their compensation plans to drill, 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 and that's sort of the the mindset of oil wildcatters anyway. Give give them money, and they're going to they're going to sink it into the ground. That's just the way this business has worked from time immemorial and, and probably always will work. So I was I was really reluctant to be sure about what what the future was 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 going to hold. I think in the year since my book was published, I became more skeptical and more convinced that the skeptical tone in in, in in the book was was right. And that's because a lot of those technological innovations didn't pan out the way they were they were supposed to. So to name one, there was this idea that if you clustered wells more tightly together, creating so-called parent and child wells, that you were going to enable a lot more production at a much cheaper cost because you were going to have more wells clustered tightly together and you weren't you weren't going to have to move your rigs and engage in all the expense of, of that. So that was one way that you were going to, you were going to get much more oil, oil and gas. Another was that by drilling longer wells, having, having the well be miles underground, that you were going to be able to get much more production from, from a single well. And so therefore it was going to become much more economically efficient. And so there were all these technological um, um, ideas out there for how for how this was this this was going to work, and there was also an idea out there that that all the geology on the Permian was going to be incredible. Since some of it was incredible for oil production, it all had to be in, in, in incredible, and it gets to this notion in the shale industry that Aubrey McClendon of Chesapeake started, which was that it wasn't, you were no longer wildcatting, um, drilling a well, and who knew how much oil it was going to produce. Instead, this business was now as predictable as manufacturing. You could just drill a well, and the geology was going to obey the humans, and it was going to produce uh, 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 the amount of oil and gas, oil or gas that you had forecast that it would. And so None of those things turned out to be true. Um, when you clustered these parent and child wells together, it actually turned out that the child wells interfered with the parents. And as, as I've joked, anybody who's trying to work at home with small children now understands parent-child interference, right? And so it turned out it didn't help the parent be productive. It actually really um, made the parent far less productive than it than 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 it than it had been. Um, it turned out that if you made the wells, you use more sand um, to frack the wells and you made the wells longer and longer and longer, that maybe you got more production at first, you got more initial production, but the decline rates were just steeper. So it didn't work to get more oil and gas out of out of the same well. It just helped pull forward the amount of production that there, there was going to be. Um, and it turned out that in a lot of places, you had a natural gas problem and that as you drilled, instead of getting oil, you were getting a hefty percentage of, of natural gas. And in some cases, so much that we were just flaring natural gas, which is incredibly wasteful, right? Incredibly bad for the environment and incredibly wasteful if you consider that as a country, we were freaked out 10 years earlier about, about natural gas shortages. So none of these um, technological um, um, advances turned out to advance much. And the Wall Street Journal did a number of really terrific stories showing how much production was below what the initial estimates um, had had been. And the geology turned out not to cooperate either. And that it turned out there were so-called sweet spots where, yes, you could drill a well really efficiently and get a lot of oil out of it and, and make money even with relatively low oil prices, but move your rig even a mile and the geology 
who knew? Geology doesn't obey human beings' demands, and it turned out it wasn't nearly so cooperative. So all the regions of the Permian didn't turn out to be created equal. And so that too contributed to actual production coming in way below what 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 estimates had 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 been so i started to become the, the the factors that made me unwilling to say this thing is doomed when i wrote my book um made made me increasingly skeptical as the evidence came in over the ensuing years uh, you know i love the you really make it so clear but the the whole market and sector is so complicated as you've been laying out even where the rules of supply and demand don't seem to necessarily play into the the viability of the industry, but now it, it seems that they are. There's this huge um, demand shock. Um, so far, far fewer people, you know, using as many fossil fuels, obviously, as as before. So, does this just speed up the existing trends, all the weaknesses and fragilities that you've just laid out, or is there something of a kind of novelty to this event that you think takes the level of disruption and you know changes the future of the sector in a way that might not have happened otherwise? I think that's a great question. And I think it is really hard. It's really hard to predict whether what's happened ends up being um, beneficial for fossil fuels in, 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 in the end, whether it slows the transition to renewables or whether it speeds it up. And I don't know the answer to that. I could lay out the case for, for both. The case that it speeds the transition to renewables is that low oil prices make it impossible for companies to make money. There's a decline in production um, just as renewables have become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And so with the the, the, the pause in fossil fuel consumption, we do an enormous reset on society and we turn toward renewables um, at a much faster clip than, than we otherwise would have. Um, the, the, the alternate case um, is that because of the dramatic decline in, in prices, um, fossil fuels are cheap. And so you it actually slows down the trend toward renewables because you have you have cheap fossil fuels and you have a longer term supply of them given how dramatically demand demand has 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 fallen off. Um, and especially as supply gets curtailed, you actually could see prices go 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 way up. Um, and you could end up with a resurgence of of fracking as oil prices soar, um, particularly if there are disruptions in oil producing areas around the world due to coronavirus, due to political upheaval in, 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 in the wake of coronavirus, you could find yourself really, really short supply and the call on shale, as they as they call it, the idea that shale will rise to fill the world's demand um, could, could happen. So <laughs> I'm actually in the same place I was when I wrote my book, which is that I, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't predict it either, either way. I don't, I don't know the answer as, as, as to what happens, I think you could you could argue either outcome or something somewhere in between. Yeah, it seems like there there aren't many good either ideas about what the what the next couple of months hold or um, you know prescriptions for for what to do about it. I mean, something that stood out um, to me just kind of watching watching this all play out is that you know you, the U.S. energy sector is a sort of anomaly worldwide, and that you know state run producers are. are a pretty normal part of, of energy systems and in other places. And there's been some sort of cartel effectively, uh, historically kind of managing production. I mean, the Texas Railroad Commission and the Seven Sisters played that role in the 1970s. And so, you know, now prices are uh, tanking, I mean, recovering a little bit in, in recent days, but there's, there's no swing producer that's sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> managing all of this. Um, and, there's this weird kind of marriage now between, um, you know, what uh, some sectors of the industry are calling for uh, in, in terms of wanting to sort of constrain production a bit to keep uh, keep prices a, a little bit higher um, and what climate activists have been calling for uh, for a while. Um, so, you know, which is to keep it in the ground um, and keep keep oil sort of from from being drilled uh, at at least the same pace that it has been in the last couple of years. So, you know, with with bankruptcies 
mounting. I'm, I'm wondering what you think the possibility um, in the U.S. might be of the government starting to play a more active role in this kind of resource management up to, you know, up to including potentially some kind of some kind of national oil company or actually, you know, taking an equity stake in, in some of these companies that, that might get bailed out? It's a, it's a really good question. And I, again, I, I, I don't know what will happen because you're, most people think you're going to continue to see really, really, really low interest rates um, um, for the foreseeable future as a result of the economic crisis we now find ourselves in. Does that result in the private sector actually bailing out shale itself, especially if you see oil prices start to rise in the same way that the private sector bailed shale out in the wake of the 2014 co- collapse? I, I I don't know. It's 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 actually quite possible. Private equity firms are sitting on an enormous amount of so-called dry powder over a trillion dollars, and they could choose to put that to work um, um, in 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 shale. So you may not even even need that. Certainly, there has been lobbying going on by the oil and gas industry for some kind of federal bailout. At least there was, um, but they're already that's already kind of happening with the Federal Reserve um, bailing out risk asset, assets. You've seen a big upswing in 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 shale bonds. It's, the situation is nowhere near as dire as it was a couple of months ago. So the government, in a way, is already bailing these 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 companies out. Um, as to whether that becomes more formalized or not, or whether whether it should, I I I I don't know. I think it is deeply ironic in that many um, oil and gas CEOs are adamant free marketers who have become in some cases billionaires based off their belief that they are these titans of industry uh, who deserve to get paid their hundreds of millions or billions of dollars because they don't rely on government handouts. And, you know, here they are in a moment of crisis, uh, or they were in a moment of crisis asking the government to bail them out, and now essentially benefiting from what is a Federal Reserve um, bailout bailout of the markets. Yeah, I mean, that that it, it seems the point about these different parts of the industry just being so at least kind of like rhetorically adamant about their faith in the free market um is is funny i mean it's just it the oil sector is not um you know and energy in general is just in 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 no sense a, a sort of free market um in any in any conventional definition what i saw somewhere that i loved which is that it takes a crisis to turn a capitalist into a socialist and, and we, we saw that in the in the financial crisis of 2008 with the big banks right it was the same dynamic and here we are with all sorts of industries uh, including including uh including uh, oil and gas CEOs. And yes, they argue in both cases that it was a once in a year flood. And of course, you couldn't predict the global financial crisis, forget that some did. And of course, you couldn't predict that a pandemic was coming, forget that many people said a pandemic was coming and that perhaps it would have been prudent not to be um, um, totally over leveraged going into it. But, you know, it's a, it's, it's a once in a lifetime thing. You couldn't predict it. So they get to get bailed out. Yeah, and I mean, thinking about that possibility, I mean, as, as you know, I think you've made the case pretty clear, and and seems, um, you know, obvious certainly at least to to some of the listeners of this show, a kind of no strings attached bailout for the industry or the people who've been financing it does not seem like it'd be money money necessarily well spent. But there are a lot of people who, you know, will really be hurt um, as these bankruptcies kind of start to start to increase and you know the rig count continues to to plummet um i'm wondering you know what you think uh relief could look like for the folks being hardest hit i mean you know in, in the sort of long scope of things both folks kind of working and uh working in the sector uh people you know maybe with pensions that are bound up in it kind of what um would be curious your thoughts on, on what a sort of better <laughs> better relief could could look like yeah, for sure. You 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 are right to highlight that, and it's something I've been thinking about. That 
whatever your views on fracking in the wake of the financial crisis, um, someone gave me this number. I haven't fact checked it, but the, 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 the dramatic explosion, no pun intended, of fracking created 4 million jobs in, in the United States. And so you had, in the wake of the Great Recession caused by 2008, you had this sort of subterranean job growth being enabled by, by fracking, which really helped bail out the economy. And those are jobs for people. Those are people's ability to feed their families. And now you have the opposite with fracking companies going going bankrupt. And so you could, putting aside the, the environmental concerns, you could make an argument that money spent um, enabling fracking companies to keep producing and drilling might be better spent than in some other areas, both in terms of continued employment, as well as in terms of um, a continued supply of oil and gas for, for the United States. Because until the age of renewables are here, I mean, we need to do something to charge our iPhones, right? <laughs> and keep, keep, keep our world running. So I think you, you could make an argument that it, that, that it is that it is money better spent than in other areas. I think my major issue with it is 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 the CEO compensation. I just don't love this structure we seem to have enabled more more broadly than oil and gas in the United States, where the the people at the top of companies can make their just pirates ransom, I mean, tens of millions of dollars um, during good times. And then the government has to step in during, during, during bad times. And that, that feels like the, the, the wrong, the wrong sort of system. So I guess I would be, I would feel better about it if it somehow took a bite out of, out of the fortunes of those at, at the top as, as, as well, and didn't just leave it to increase taxes that will be borne by middle-class Americans um, to essentially fund a decade of overindulgence on, on, on cheap debt, um, and, then, and, then, and then the bailout associated with that. I am also pro not bailing out the, the CEOs um, for various reasons. Um, and I guess this kind of circles back to the question of of the public's role and potentially even public ownership. Um, I think often, you know, from the kind of climate left, you hear the case for nationalizing fossil fuel sectors or at least some of the industry as a way of managing decline in an orderly way. And that could include things like, you know, uh, cleanup, you know, dealing with the stranded oil wells and so on. Yes. But I, I wonder, yeah, in this context, if the strongest case actually isn't about workers. I mean, a managed decline without massive CEO compensation that is really about providing workers a just transition um, and ensuring that they are fairly compensated and not essentially held hostage as kind of human shields, even by fossil fuel executives, as we've seen, for instance, in, in coal. You know, what, what do you make of, of this, I think, growing discussion of alternative models, maybe public models of ownership and putting workers uh, in front as the prime beneficiaries of that? Yeah, I think it theoretically makes a lot of sense. And especially when you look at, I mean, even moving beyond the pandemic, when you look at the cost to the environment, the cost to people's health, the use of water resources, um, the stranded asset argument that who gets who who gets left to shoulder the burden of cleanup when executives are walking away with with fortunes and even putting aside the pandemic there's something wrong with that picture right um i guess theoretically being able to put it in the hands of an all-seeing government entity that would make smart decisions about resource use and smart decisions on behalf of um workers is a really lovely idea Practically speaking, when I look at um, our government right now and our government's functioning over the last decade, um, the idea makes me very nervous. Yeah, I, I can understand that that nervousness, especially with the current administration. Right. So you, it's it's a little bit of be careful what you wish for, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to um, get into something you wrote sort of recently, picking up on, on some of the themes from the book. Um, in the New York Times in April, you, you wrote about uh, kind of ongoing situation. And just want to read a quick quote. You say, energy independence was a fever dream fed by cheap debt and frothy capital markets. All that's left to tally is the environmental and financial damage. So you know, I, we've, we've talked a little bit about climate. Um, and, you know, we know that, that 
the thing shale companies have been doing for the better part of a decade, drilling as much as possible with with cheap debt and sort of in the name of energy independence um, is unsustainable, you know, on on many levels. So um, whatever sort of ownership structures look like, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, with with the climate crisis bearing down with sort of many people's livelihoods really bound up in in the sector, you know, what do you think should replace this idea of energy independence or is there is there you know something else which which can come um sort of come after that as a kind of guiding force of 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 u.s energy policy well i think as a global um force it should be energy dependence right we are all deeply dependent on each other and i i had this view even when shale production was huge that ener- the concept of energy independence was was a fraud in 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 many ways um because because no matter how much we were producing we were still reliant on imports from asia to keep our economy going asia in turn was reliant on oil energy supplies from the middle east this idea that in a modern e- globalized economy you can just isolate and talk about being energy independent it just harkened back to an era that that didn't exist anymore and so it was a false thing to to strive for if if we come out of this with any kind of pluses you would you you would hope for more of 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 a recognition of how dependent we all are on each other ar- ar- around around the globe um um and i don't know how that results in any kind of meaningful meaningful policy but if we can all stop beating our chest about any kind of um independence we might be better off as a species <laughs> I, I really like the way you put that, and it's a great way to move us, I think, toward this question of global interdependence and what you know what all this means for the renewable energy industry, which I think we'd all agree is, is has to grow very quickly um, if we're going to tackle the climate emergency. So, you know, my sense is that, and and many people have said this, right, that we tend to overestimate humans tend to overestimate the amount of change that can happen very short term, but underestimate what can happen a bit longer term. And you know, Bill Gates famously. You know, we'll overestimate what happens in two years, but underestimate what happens in in 10. And so, I don't know, when I look at the um, energy sector, I I do see a bit of a difference between, I think, on the one hand, fossil fuel sort of people in that realm who have been pretty skeptical of renewables for a very long time. Then you have folks who tend to work more in the renewable energy space who are very optimistic. And um, I tend to think that from that slightly longer term perspective, the renewable energy people have all the arguments in their favor. It just keeps getting cheaper and there's really nothing coming that would make fossil fuels more attractive. So I guess I'm wondering, do you think people in the fossil fuel sector are underestimating the the prospects of a transition toward renewables coming pretty quickly? Is there really any chance at all that there would be like a swaggering, invincible feeling fossil fuel industry uh, in 2030, whatever is the result of you know this season's crisis. I don't. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I. I. I think there is a chance. And he, one scenario that somebody smart I was talking to laid out to me: a good portion of the declines in the cost of solar energy have been because of manufacturing um, efficiencies out of China. If part of what comes out of this pandemic is uh, 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 increase in trade tensions with with China and an idea that manufacturing has to be local again, and you start to remove some of those um, efficiencies from the system. What does that do to the cost of of solar power? And that's just one of the many unknowns we face coming com- coming out of this. Um, I think per Michael Moore's new documentary, there are some questions brewing about how environmental um, some renewables actually actually are. You could make an argument that if natural gas in particular can get their methane emissions under control, which is, at least as I understand it, a matter of choice and policy, um, 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 that perhaps a natural gas driven driven world isn't isn't completely far fetched. So I I I think I think there are a lot of questions um, um, in the future, and and I, I I wouldn't rule out a swaggering at least natural gas industry by 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 twenty thirty. Yeah, that's really interesting, and and it's the point well taken. You know, if we lost access to the very low price techniques in, in China, let's say in the US for renewable energy technology, I guess it could take a bit longer to achieve those prices here. I guess I'm wondering, 
maybe if we reframe it from prediction toward political choice. Um, as you've been you know, pointing out this whole time, the natural gas industry here depends on a fair bit of public help, you know, whether it's you know, just in the form of low interest rates um, and then potentially other uh, sort of policy environments that make it very helpful. Um, there's some discussion sort of growing around the idea that you could have a green version of that. So for instance, the Fed or the Treasury backing green bonds that would have very, very, very low interest rates and make it so that you could basically be building renewable you know, energy infrastructure and financing it at, you know, 1% interest or something like that. Um, I, I, you know, would, would you see that as potentially a kind of a game changer for the renewable energy industry? Are there other kinds of public policies that you would see as being, you know, feasible and productive to help a, a rapid transition? I, I don't know. I haven't put enough time into thinking about that to have a really a really smart answer f- for you. It certainly seems like it would it it would it it would make sense, right, for us as a country to be pounding our chest about being a great fossil fuel uh, um, um, producer when the world is clearly at some point going toward renewables seems. Um, like like priding ourselves on being a power in the world that 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 as what as it was and not being a leader in the world going forward and certainly if we are going to bring manufacturing back to the United States if part of the outcome of of this is a less globalized world then yes it would make sense to do what we could to make sure some of that industry and some of that technology is 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 located here that we know how to do it um on the other hand you could argue that coming out of this period it's still so unclear what's going to happen to the to the economy and it might it might set everything back by by decades as we worry about food security and about um, and about employment for people and as those worries take precedence over worries about the climate um, about climate change I, I I don't know which I don't know which way it's going to go I don't know how I don't know whether I don't know whether the crisis is going to make us more long-term thinking or whether it's going to make us more short-term oriented yeah I think that's uh, <laughs> it's there's just so much we don't we don't know uh, at this point about about what the next couple months um, are going to look like. Thank you so much for walking us through all this. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It was delightful to talk to you, and I wish you all the best. That was Bethany McLean, author of Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. She's also the co-author of the bestseller, The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron, Peter Elkind, as well as All the Devils Are Here, The Hidden History of the Financial Crisis, co-authored with Jonah Sarah and Shaky Ground, The Strange Saga of the U.S. Mortgage Giants. She is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Yeah, it's such a fascinating interview, and I learned a ton. And, you know, I would say I am a bit more bullish on renewables. I think I've been persuaded... Um, by other folks looking at the energy world. I think of the oil fall series by Gregor McDonald, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes, just as a kind of counterbalance. Um, but as you know, we discuss in the interview, it is really impossible to know. And I thought the point that um, Bethany made about re-nationalizing supply chains was super interesting. In other words, that if we um, have less kind of globalization in the aftermath of this crisis and more of manufacturing is onshored, then it's likely that renewable energy costs in the United States would go up. And to me, actually, that points to the the need for us to make, I think, a more political and kind of climate-oriented case for renewables and to not only talk about how cheap uh, they are. Because as as Bethany pointed out, the argument for cheapness um, for renewables isn't necessarily going to hold up in every possible circumstance. And the fact that solar energy might be a little bit cheaper per kilowatt hour um, than fracked gas at any given point that's not really the main reason why we should be switching to to renewables. Yeah, I think that's right. And and it ties into I think something else that really comes up in throughout the interview, I would say, which is that energy is not a free market, right? And so I think there's a way that clean energy advocates can talk about uh solar and wind as the cheapest source of energy, their price is falling, but that is not, you know, always what determines kind of what's on the grid um, for a whole host of reasons. I would also say on renationalizing supply chains, um, it's just it's just such an important point, right? I mean, you know, 
there are industries in China which have spent by now, you know, decades perfecting uh, how to make batteries and EVs and, uh, you know, things that we just don't have the capacity necessarily to do here. And I think the the sort of, you know, really kind of bullish claim that that you can hear about green manufacturing in the U.S. Um, can pretend as if we can just build that stuff overnight. Um, when in reality, you know, there are real questions about specialization. And so I think um, definitely something, you know, worth exploring in, in, in future shows, but um, is, is certainly something to be to be thinking about. Yeah, you're totally right. And you know, I think we saw this when there was an attempt to to onshore some of the Apple manufacturing, and we just don't have the same ecosystem um, of sort of support of manufacturing, right? Like if you need to get a different screw that's also extremely tiny, where are you going to get that? And at this point in the manufacturing regions in, in China, there is a whole ecosystem of production, uh, which allows you know firms to do a lot of stuff very quickly and to be quite nimble. And you know, the last thing I would just say, but it's so complex, this question of onshoring supply chains and whether we really want to do it. But I think, you know, we should acknowledge also, as you were saying, Kate, it's not a free market. And most of the many of the things we would want to do to make the energy system more just would make it a bit more expensive, right? Like um, preventing extractive mineral processes that are horrible for the communities at the edge of extraction will raise the cost. Um, ensuring, you know, unionization in the renewable energy sector at the highest levels will also raise raise costs a little bit. So you know, the idea that there's a kind of free market competition between clean and dirty and clean is winning by a little bit. And therefore, that's really the whole story. It's just um, it seems like a a really bad way to actually understand what's going on and a, and a trap in terms of what we actually want to do with the energy system in terms of making it more democratic and fair all around. Yeah, if we're stuck in a race between clean energy companies and fossil fuels about who can employ the cheapest labor, uh, I think we are losing uh, yeah. whatever whatever else is happening. Yeah, who can force the most costs and externalities onto labor ecosystems and so on. Right. Exactly. Well, uh, you've been listening to Hot and Bothered, a climate podcast in the time of coronavirus. That's it for this episode. We're hosted by Descent Magazine. We're produced by Colin Kinnebra. And if you like what you've been hearing, do help us spread the word. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag HotBotheredClimate. And if you're able to, pitch in to cover our cost of production. You can do that at patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate. So until next time, stay hot, stay bothered, and stay inside. <laughs>